Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Coger Center Arts Roundup. Hi, welcome back to the Coger Center Arts Roundup podcast. Our special guest this week is Catherine Walworth from the Columbia Museum of Art. Uh, I just asked Catherine seconds ago what her title was, and she said that she is a curator. But right now, you could also say you are the curator because there's just one of you at the museum right now. Um, how long have you been in this singular position of being the only curator? Uh, since mid-January. And so you all are hopefully actively looking for a second person to help you. We are. We just had um, some interviews yesterday, actually. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's going to be great to have that person to bounce ideas off of again. We, we always work on our own exhibitions and kind of give each other, while well, one person is opening one, another one's, you know, working on another one. And, and just, just having that banter is really great. So will you tell us what what does a museum curator do? I mean, I think some of us have an idea in our head, but I don't know what a, the day-to-day -day life of a curator is. Can you talk to us about what it really means to be a curator at a museum? It's, here's the thing, nobody really knows. And I, what I realized, not even all languages have a word for it. Um, and certainly my parents didn't know what I was talking about. So basically, you know, what I love to do is read and look at art and talk about art and think about art. So you, what we do is take care of collections and we, we create exhibitions or, um, so there's, there's those two sides of things. For the collection, we're stewarding it, right? So we're, like, I'm going to be transforming more galleries this year upstairs, um, according to our thematic installations, looking for more works downstairs. We just made some really significant new acquisitions. We, we take those to a collections committee a few times throughout the year where we bring potential gifts and, and purchases and then they you know, approve or don't approve those. So there's the collection building and loving and stewarding and, and um, cataloging and conserving and um, interpreting. And then there's the exhibition side, which really for a curator is probably the most creative part of this, especially when you get to organize your own exhibition because you know, I always say art is just about people and it's just a lens, you know, in undergrad, I was also a history major. So it's just a way of talking about history or this, the human condition. And you put all these stories together and you've created uh, an experience that you have to walk through um, and read and take in. So could you talk to me about um, the museum? Let's, let's talk about the Columbia Museum of Art specifically because uh, it was remodeled recently, and the f amount of floor space has been increased over uh, recent years. How long have you been at the museum, and, and did you come before or after the most recent renovation? So I came before. I arrived in April of 2016, and I think we took the collection down. It was 20, it was summer of 2017. We took the collection down, and it took us I think a year and a half full stop to renovate, but we opened different portions every six months, I think ending with the plaza. So um, December of 2018, when the Pollock mural painting was here, for example, that was a project I'd been working on. Uh, and so, yes, yeah, so while we were closed, we were still having special exhibitions downstairs. And then, you know, we, we were like elves in here moving little scale models around, having arguments over what sh pieces should go back up. And then we had about 
eight people around a table reading every single label that the um, chief curator and I wrote. And we would just talk about words and ideas and, you know, who's going to read this label and what are they going to get out of it? And what does that word mean? And, you know, and museums are changing so much. It's getting away from the biography of the artist and, and you start with what you see and you bring people in. And, and so, yeah, we, we laid out the whole, upstairs in a new way. And, and I'll be honest, at first I was not completely on board with thematic. I was really worried because I love history. I thought, well, everybody's got that uncle that doesn't think they understand art, but they love history, right? But the thematic installation has gone really well. And now that we've lived it, lived with it for a couple of years, it's time to refresh it. So I'm trying to get some some new themes and new works. And I love playing in the basement. I, that's kind of my thing is finding stuff that hasn't been on view in a long time and bringing it out. So I also feel like art museum, museums in general, uh, including art museums, seem to have sort of a twofold task in my mind. One is the presentation to the public, but the other is the preservation of works. And I always find it amazing at how much the museum, any museum owns that's not uh, on view. So um, can you talk about museums place in, in our culture and our in the world for, um, you know, keeping these works of art safe and available for the future, and then delve into what you just said, like, where do you store that? And, and how often do you get to pull stuff out and swap things around? Right. I mean, it, there have been stories lately about just how much, for example, like the Met owns, I mean, they're almost, I mean, they're basically hoarders, right? But, but at the same time, I mean, we're, we're not that way. We have about 7,000 objects, give or take, and over 300 are on view upstairs. And you asked earlier about the gallery space. We did create our first permanent galleries of contemporary art, which we didn't have before. So we relied on special exhibitions downstairs to pull our contemporary art pieces out. So that's been great. Um, but in terms of what's on view, so a lot of those 7,000 pieces are works on paper though. And you can't show those for more than, you know, three or four months at a time. And we have certain, you know, the conditions that we keep things in, we have charts for how many foot candles can be on paper, wood, textiles, paint, you know, ceramics. And, and so our um, preparators are, are watching all those things all the time. So that's part of caring for collections because after a work on paper has been on view, it has to go rest was what we call it back down in storage in the dark um, because that paper itself is organic and it's gonna take some, you know, a little bit of a beating just for being under lights. And, you know, we, we monitor the humidity and all the conditions are right. So people at home that have these works that they love in their living room with the best sunlight <laughs> hitting right and directly on them are not doing the best that they could for their work. So that is, that is our job. But I've had this series since, um, I guess it probably started in May during the shutdown. Communications uh, came to me and said, you know, you love to play around in the basement. Would you like to highlight an object every week? So we created a series called Walworth Wednesdays where I would go and just find something random. And it was such a good opportunity for me to just play down there and really get some stuff out. And some great things have come from it actually. And, and they're just little ditties. I tried to, I mean, my brand is to be smart and funny at the same time. Nobody needs a stick in the mud. Um, but I always say, for example, when you read a label in the gallery, you should be 
thinking, okay, my house is on fire. What two ideas do I need to grab before I escape? And, and that should be the purpose of information sharing, if that makes sense. It does. Um, I will ask you to take off your curatorial hat when you come to the Cover Center because <laughs> we have um, this gift that was donated to the university um, of uh, 160 or so Philip Mullen paintings, and I know that he's got one at the Columbia Museum of Art, and some number of them, 30-ish, um, have been living at the Cover Center in our lobby, which is nothing but windows, for 30 years. And I watched the walls around the paintings fade. And I say to Philip when he stops by, or, shall I be concerned about this? Do we need to rotate these? And he's like, no, they're fine. And as he says fine, he's dragging his hand up and down <laughs> the surface of the painting. And you think, well, you're the artist, I guess. Uh, but yes, you're not, I, smoking. you're not smoking in there, so that's fine. But yeah, there's, there's no smoking. So I, I realize that, you know, some things are hardier than others, and definitely mm -hmm. the things on paper need maybe a little more care than some of the uh, other works. Yeah. And I did see the same thing about the Met, and I, and I thought to myself, they don't even know what they have, they have so much. But so 7,000 seems like a lot. Where do you store? Uh, 7,000 works of art when, or the other 6,700 that aren't on display. You know, the building used to be an old department store, right? So we have a footprint that when other people visit us from other museums, they're actually pretty jealous because I don't know if it used to be the shoe department. Whatever downstairs is, is pretty um, spacious, but, you know, I'm not going to give a ton away, but we've got a, a, a main vault and then a secondary vault and We've got racks and storage cabinets and furniture bins and things in there. Um, so most of it's on site? It's all on site. Yeah. And then just stepping back in time, you were talking about the renovation um, and how you now have, you know, I'll, I'll use air quotes when I say new contemporary gallery because it's now been, what, almost three years, two, two years since things have opened, but it's still fairly new in the grand scheme of things. Um, how much new gallery space did you gain through the renovations, like how many new works of art could you put out as a result of renovating the museum? I knew, oh man, don't ask me numbers. It's terrible. I should know the square footage. I mean, we got three galleries carved out of the space that used to be what we called the dead zone upstairs. We used to have parties up there. So we carved it out of that existing footprint and, and they're pretty sizable. Um, two in particular are, are rather long galleries. I can't remember how many works exactly are hanging in there, but three galleries. And, and you're able to show more stuff now than you did before the, in the, in the sort of called permanent collection? Yes. Yeah, we are. And, but, and we're also acquiring and I'm trying to think, I don't think the numbers shifted dramatically, but that might be because before we had more, let's say Asian ceramics on view. So a, ca a case could hold, you know, it just depends on how many things are in the case, how large are these works, that kind of thing. Do you have more space for traveling, you know, special exhibits now than you used to? Nope, that's the same. That's still downstairs. Um, and that, that is just like, uh, you know, I think people get frustrated with us when they, they, they're interested in showing their work here. And, you know, we're like a cruise ship, right? Trying to turn the ship around takes a while. So, I'm already working on exhibitions well into 2023. We, we always plan these things out. You know, it takes sometimes six months just to finalize a contract. And then you've got, so basically I, I always compare it to, I'm a waitress. So I have some exhibitions 
where the, the check is ready. You know, they've had their mailage check is ready. I have some things where people just got the menu. So I'm working on right now, probably eight to 10 exhibitions right now, long-term. And how many of those are things that somebody else has put together and are going around the country as, as a group, as an exhibition from us to another museum to another museum? And, and how many of them are things that someone like yourself is creating out of thin air? That's a really good question. You need a balance. And there are three different things you could do. You could create one from your own collection. You could create one from anywhere in the world or you take traveling exhibitions. And, and you kind of have to have a balance because they require a different level of work. Um, so for example, this summer we had Black is Beautiful and Design by Time, and those were both traveling exhibitions. So I didn't have to write new label content. So what we, in that case, we call ourselves the in-house curator. So I lay them out, I steward it, you know, I work on the check all the, you know, years in advance. Um, do you decide what goes where inside your, your space or do they sort of tell you this is the order things that are laid out in when they come you in? Know, those two were stranger than normal. Design by Time had this weird uh, furniture that came with it that we had to lay out that was tough. But, but no, I, I decide, Black is Beautiful had a basic three, they, they, the folks that did that show normally do catalogs, so they have a hard time conceptualizing it outside of a book. So I did follow their chapters, but there was some flexibility. Some of those images could have gone in either way. So I love laying shows out. We have a three-dimensional model downstairs, and we make scales and just lay it out. So the Visions from India exhibition that just opened is kind of a hybrid that came out of a private collection. So they all came from one place, but I chose the works. I laid it out, and I wrote uh, new labels for it. So that was kind of a, in that sense, it's great because you don't have loans coming from all sorts of different places, but it's a great cross-section that that collector assembled. And yeah, I have a dream exhibition I want to work on, but I just don't have time to get to, <laughs> get to it in terms of like original content. Yeah. Is that something you would care to share? I would love to hear what your dream is. Uh... You know, it's tough. It's these two women artists my, my background, my dissertation was on the Russian Revolution and, uh, you know, people recycling things from before the revolution, using them, turning them into socialist objects after the revolution. So I'm kind of interested in that part of the world, but this really is an American art show. It would be, I'm really scooping myself. I'm, I'm actually a little nervous about talking about this. So basically, I won't give the names away, but it's two women who were both American mid-century abstract artists who both just happened to have been born in what was Imperial Russia. And they were both essentially frustrated architects. And, and, and so I'm thinking about construction. I'm thinking about the way they constructed their identities. They both also loved fashion. One of them made her own clothing. Her mother was a dressmaker. The other one constructed her identity with clothing. So it would be sculpture, painting, assemblages, and fashion. Um, and really just talking about, you know, these various themes of American art, of abstraction at mid-century, which people don't realize, you know, not everybody gets abstract art, but it used to be such a foreign concept. We were years behind other parts of the world and even accepting it as art. So these artists that helped normalize it, we don't quite realize what that means now. And it's kind of a big deal. But also these, you know, these women, I just, I love fashion. I always include it in my 
uh, art history. And I think of it as architecture. Like for me, a zipper is an elevator. You know, they're, <laughs> they're just wrapping themselves in a building. And so, I, yeah, so that would be the, uh, the general idea. So that would be an example of creating a uh, exhibit from scratch. Right. Have you, can you give us an example of creating an exhibit from scratch, but out of the existing collection of the, of the museum? Sure, yeah. You know, when I first got here, there was a chance to do something. I did a show called That 70s Show. It was all works from the 70s, and I loved it, and I bought some bean bags to put in there. Um, and it was a good way to talk about differences in, you know, identity and just, it was just fun. I, I loved it. But, you know, you were also talking about original shows. Sometimes these contemporary art exhibitions, one person shows, um, that is also creating an original exhibition, but working with an artist who's making new work and also it's a mix of existing work and new work. So we had the Katie Pell show, Mimi Cato, the inflatable exhibition last year with Jimmy Keenly called Wow Pop Bliss, and um, Renee Cox. So we've done a number of those, and those are both real headachey and super fabulous to do. Like for example, Jim, Jimmy, you know, he, I had asked him at some point, okay, I don't wanna know what art you wanna make now, I wanna know what art you wanna make two years from now. And so he wanted to make the most complex technological piece he'd ever done. And then he showed up and it wasn't quite finished. So I'm stringing lights through this inflatable and he's having to get um, an Airbnb across the street and miss his flights because it's still not done, right? And it was super, I mean, our, our preparators were literally getting into the ceiling and hanging this from an I-beam. And we were, you know, it was, it was dangerous work. I was in the middle of a very heavy inflatable for a second, just trying to breathe before it was installed. But then at the end, it was magnificent. It was magnificent. So you got to pay the price. Yes, we have uh, an exhibit in our little gallery space um, of Philip's new work, Philip Mullen's new work. And um, we put it up the day we closed for the pandemic. Um, and he has changed it out multiple times since it's hung and we haven't sort of officially opened it to the public. Um, he keeps creating new stuff and thinking, no, I'm gonna swap these two. Um, so it's a lot of fun sometimes, but I get that uh, it, it's hard to put sort of like a stamp on something as being done or know that it will be complete in time because what I've learned with working with artists is that they will use 100 and maybe 101% of the time you give them to do something. If you give them three weeks, they will use three weeks. If you give them three months, they will use the three months. And the exhibit may look the same, but it will take the amount of time that it takes. And it's sometimes you're, yes, finishing things as people are walking in to view it. Well, I have two, well, what, tell me more about his, Pete, what, what kind of installation is it? So, uh, well, what we have here, it's, it's all paintings of okay, okay. Phillips, yeah. um, but we've, uh, we have a, a reception space that's three-sided, one, one side is windows, and we've been putting, you know, a dozen or so works of art in it. But Philip, because the whole building is full of his work, has mm -hmm. started to put art on the walls outside of the gallery in places we've never had art. So we're hanging art on walls that have never had art hung on them before, which is fantastic. He's, he's sort of viewing the whole building, and he's sort of self-curating, and he'll stop by and look at stuff because he wants to see something and then go back home 
uh, and finish the painting that he's working on, but he wanted to reference one that's hanging here. So we'll just mm -hmm. sort of stop by and look at it and, oh, right, okay, and then he leaves. And then, um, so it's, it's a lot of fun to work with an artist who's in, continually in the process yeah. of making the work. But I can imagine that, um, that when it's not just hanging paintings on the wall, as the uh, inflatables exhibit was, it could be a little nerve wracking. Yeah, and first of all, I love everything. I love the way you just described Philip's working process right now. And, and in a strange way, you, maybe you being closed is allowing for more of that in an interesting, positive way. Um, but also, you know, I think sometimes people wonder how we choose our artists, right? And, and there are many ways to choose them. But I also, the artists that I have tended to do solo shows with here, I've known for a long time. So you know they're going to deliver. Mimi Cato did her own CAD drawings to show me ideas. You know, it was Jimmy, I know he's going to book that Airbnb and fix it. Like, like, and, and there's just a level of trust there that you will do whatever it takes and hopefully really minimize that last minute stuff. You know, in one case with Katie Pell, her husband passed away in the middle of her trying to get ready for that show. And then she had to try to get her daughter through high school graduation. So there's such an emotional drain. And, and what's lovely about that art community is all of her friends showed up to help her frame her work to get ready for this exhibition and packed it. And, you know, it, it takes a family like that to make it happen, but it made it even more special. And then unfortunately, Katie passed away and that exhibition became her swan song. And I love you know, she's, she had shown all over Texas, but this was a solo exhibition at a museum outside her home state. And that was, I feel so good about doing that with her. And it was, we basically created an opera. That's how I looked at it. I felt like it was an opera of all of her themes she'd been working on forever. And we just turned it into this crazy experience with fuchsia and orange walls. And it was just, I really leaned into the ridiculousness of it. And um, yeah, so pretty good about that. Maybe just haven't been paying attention, but um, mostly I guess you go to major galleries and the gallery itself um, doesn't change. Not, not even the art changes much on the walls uh, and the galleries are, you know, the walls are white or off-white and, um, and you go back 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and every time you go, it looks basically the same. Um, and you go because you miss seeing something, you want to see something that you've seen in pictures over and over. But I notice the space somehow seems to transform along with the traveling exhibits. It's not just a white wall and we're going to put stuff up. Can you talk about the process of deciding and, or does the artist decide how to help transform the building to be a part of the living, you know, a living part of the exhibit? No, we do that. I mean, Mike Dwyer is our exhibition des designer and he, he for this uh, Visions from India, chose the colors and did something he hasn't done before, which is pay attention to painting the end caps of the walls, particular colors. I often, it probably drives him crazy, but I have a lot of ideas about color in my head already for most exhibitions. And, and I really, to me, that's where, you know, it's part of creating this, a whole experience. You bring your whole person to an exhibition. I used to drive when I, you know, was in my 20s and I lived in Seattle, I would drive three hours to Portland just to see a show. Like the first times I ever went to Charleston, I went just to see an exhibition. They should be so great that they're like benchmark moments in your life. But that's only created if the impact it has on you as a body and a 
mind is memorable, right? So um, it's not about, I think people sometimes talk about it in the same vein as, oh, you're painting your house and you want your painting to match your couch. It's not that. It's sometimes it's taking colors from periods of time. Sometimes it's just, I, I don't know, like the Fuchsia Gallery. That whole gallery was about Peter Frampton and record album covers. I just wanted to go full blast. I wanted to just hit you in the face with, I don't know, each show lends itself in a different way. Well, I think it makes it more of an immersive experience. The art isn't just the thing that's hanging on the wall. The art is the experience of seeing all of the works together. Can we talk uh, as a case in point with Visions of India, since that's what's just opened? Um, so that's a, an exhibit that came to you. That, that's a collection. Um, can you talk about specifically how, how, how long it's taken? How long, when you knew it was going to come, who put it together, just as an example of uh, how long this process is, and then talk about the installation and everything and what people can expect yeah. when they see it. Well, this has been kind of a joy. So, so I did my, the last time I went back to, I took eight years off between getting my master's and my PhD. And, and I, I really wanted a good reason to go back. So I went back, it happened to be the start of the recession. So I lived in Columbus, Ohio, and I went to uh, the Ohio State University in Columbus from 2008 until 2013. And in that time, there's a private collector there named Ron Pizzuti. And he just loves contemporary art so much that I think it was 2012, maybe, he, he purchased a 1920s building downtown to create his own sort of gallery for his work. And so I knew that it existed. I don't even think I had gotten there yet, but a gal that was ahead of me in, in the program, I knew had gotten hired as his curator. So she was working with him to go to India to these art fairs and purchase work, helped him build his collection. This exhibition is not his entire collection. It's one wing of it. I was actually going to them because I knew he collected Latin American art and we're still looking. We have not found that, that just perfect fit Latin American exhibition yet for us. Um, but when I went to their website, they were showing visions from India. And I was just bowled over because I know museums need to know their city census, right? And we have a, a vibrant and engaged and just smart and lovely community of Indian Americans here. And I thought, how great for everybody involved, right? Everyone should see themselves at the museum. Plus, we're the only, technically really, we're the only international museum in the state. Everyone else has a regional focus or a, kind of a specific, like a religious art, the Renaissance art from Italy. It's, we're, we're broad. So I'm constantly looking for a way to be global and this is just so cool. So basically I wrote to the curator at the time and said, can we borrow these? So it's not a traveling exhibition. They created a special contract for us to borrow these works. So this is not everything they had on view. The Anish Kapoor, he was not gonna travel it. And anything with rust, feathers, charcoal that you know is not great to travel. Um, other things that were technology-based, I knew which installations of the technology I really wanted, and you don't want to overwhelm the installation process. So I refined it down to the ones I really wanted, leave the other ones out. And yeah, so it took a few years to, you know, in the meantime, he donated works to the Columbus Museum of Art. So we had two trucks bring this exhibition from two locations, two different weeks. 
We had couriers come down for four or five days that had installed the sushi table, for example, before they had to put that whole table together, put all those tiffins on. We had an electrician come for three days trying to rewire our floor because the converter boxes we kept buying weren't working. And um, I'm gonna segue here. If you have a, there's something called a registrar's brain. So what the registrar does is book the shipping. They do a lot with the collection, very detailed, detail oriented. So Amber Waterstrat here, you know, book those shipments, um, does condition reporting, that kind of thing. So it's not that I'm doing it all, but in terms of being the lead in, in, in bringing the exhibition. And then it took me months to research all the artists. And in the meantime, we also, created a community group where we were working with um, local folks here to do slow looking sessions and, and talk about it. And, and the feedback that we got, I was really nervous because this work is so challenging and so contemporary. Most of it was made around 2008, nine, and they loved it because they were like, thank you for showing a completely different side of India. It's not a cliche. It's not completely craft based. It's like, we are a contemporary culture. I'm really leaning into this idea of the, the South Asian or the Indian imagination. You, you walk into those galleries and you don't expect what you get. It, you, like my tagline is, I wanna bring exhibitions that you didn't even know you wanted to see because you've never seen anything like it before. And for me, that makes it tough because if people don't already know a brand name like Picasso, they're not going to buy a ticket. And, and so I think my life's work is trying to entice people in to have these great experiences, kicking and screaming, you know? So you, uh, were you the only one that was picking the art or were you working with the owner to decide what would come and what wouldn't come to sort of complete this exhibit? Uh, in that case, I was working with his, at some point Greer, um, left and so I worked with his registrar. So really, you know, she just let me know the Anish Kapoor is not gonna travel and you uh, can have anything else you want. And, and so I made those choices and um, yeah, that was, that was me. Well, it's a truly fantastic exhibit. Um, are there something that you could talk about specifically? Uh, as you said, it's, um, it's all 21st century, right? So it's this, uh, is that true? It's all 21st century? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, these artists are so cool. I love, they are just at the sort of the ripe age of probably late 40-ish. They were in art school in the 90s, like in the early 90s, right? So India's opening up. I mean, MTV is there and they're just like, I don't know, they're just taking in all this work. Most of the artists do live in India. There are a few that grew up in India and then came to the States or came here as children or reverse migrated. But yeah, they're just, um, they are living and working in India. And what I love about this is it's regardless of India, they're just some of the best artists working in the world right now, just anywhere. It's, they're super ambitious. The scale of these works, you saw the show, the scale is really big, right? You walk in, it's just overwhelming with like, wow, they knew they wanted to make something really big. And, and then that has a, that's why you can't look at this stuff in a book, right? You've got to stand up against it. And just see, see it and let it, 
it, it is sort of oppress you or, or, or let the art come off the walls or off the floor and yeah. be in your presence. It, it is quite, quite an amazing exhibit. Um, and it's full of sounds as well. Yes. It's, so it's a, I, I think that that's one of the things for me that I enjoyed so much about it is so often I feel like in a gallery, you're whispering and it's silent and that can be lovely. Right? It can be lovely to be in a place where it's just quiet because it's hard to find that anywhere in the world these days. But um, I love that the noise of the exhibit is really a part of the bustle of the room and it really adds to the atmosphere. Was, was the, did you sort of have, was that a conscious decision to sort of like have this be more than just something that you see? No, these are the things you don't plan for. So the archway with the swinging sword, which is giving us a little difficulty right now, but we're going to fix it. That makes this metronome sound that I didn't expect. I'd seen videos of it. I knew most people just saw a still photograph. I'd seen at least a video of it and I knew it was what to expect, but it has this sound that just feels like meditation. It almost is like a heartbeat that I it's perfect for that piece. And then the sushi table with all the tippins on the conveyor belts, that's got this cacophony, and, and some people are not loving it, but it, it, it's like a bustling city. I mean, it's like, you know, a busy city in India with all of its noise. Yeah, it, it, it somehow adds to the energy of the exhibit. Yeah, I mean, I went to a show once in Cleveland where you opened doors and you had smells. Like you would open a, like a dryer door and smell something and then close it and go to the next one and smell something. There's all kinds of ways that you can work on your senses. Um, is there a, a particular work of art that, that belongs to the museum that um, you're, you, you know, stands out in your mind that would be a great example of something that you're really proud that we have owned here in Columbia, South Carolina? Oh gosh, this is, this is a tough one. This like is picking a, between your children. I, it's, what, it's what I was just going to say. Um, you know, I just recently purchased that Eileen Gray chair and have basically given it a parade, a COVID style parade with all kinds of videos and talks around it because I'm so excited about adding her uh, story to the collection. The design gallery is my baby. That was totally, when I arrived, it's, it's such a small world. I had been at Pittsburgh working on an industrial design exhibition for two years at Carnegie Museum. And it turns out that the, one of the originating curators of that exhibition started his career here, started as assistant registrar, this is Kevin Tucker, and he left as um, chief curator and he's this great design curator. And he and others left a basement full of great design objects. And so I already have that love. So I've started bringing things out and um, we've had an industrial design historian move back to town and just been acquiring things for that collection. So that's kind of, that's kind of my special wheelhouse right now. I'd love to add some, you know, we, we, we need some more modernist and contemporary works, I think, to add. So do you, when you say that, do you have um, artists in mind, works in mind? Um, this is a question I have because uh, do you acquire things as they sort of by happenstance become available or do you go out and convince people that this thing that you own would really serve the city of Columbia better by being in our museum and, and convince them to sell it? Or, or is it some of both? So it's a mixture of gifts 
And, and I think of it as constellating, like we have this existing collection. So any object to take in, I want to tell three or four different stories by constellating with what we have. But when it comes to purchases, you know, we have a limited amount of money to spend and, and we're going to be revisiting that. We have a strategy. We know what our gaps are, but every museum has glaring historical gaps that they're trying to fill with, with female artists, all artists of color. I mean, the full gamut. Um, so we just made some important acquisitions and put out a press release on that because I just thought, you know, we're doing the work. I want people to know we're doing the work so they feel better about us, you know. So last year I had been in New York and um, found a Sanford Biggers piece in, in the gallery in Chelsea and we purchased it. And as soon as the ink was dry on the purchase, Sanford Biggers himself was doing a retrospective of his quote works um, as a traveling exhibition with three different museums and we got a loan request so it was never even on the wall. It, it went and of course as soon as that exhibition it was supposed to open in April and the virus hit so it's it's now open at its first venue but I loved that and it also was like proof of concept because when you buy something that had been literally made that year it hasn't had time to really play itself out but it's part of this larger story that's already you know, getting that historical stamp on it. So that's very cool. And yeah, it's just, you kind of have to, it's kind of like being an adventuring marauder. Um, you know, we had the Black is Beautiful exhibition this summer, which just felt emotionally like Thanksgiving. We had, when people came in and saw it and it meant so much, that just made me, my heart just filled to overflowing, right? And so even if, the protests this summer hadn't happened, even if none of the other cultural influences had impacted what that exhibition meant. And that was two years in the making because that exhibition was the first exhibition and catalog on that artist. And the artist himself is still alive and his son is his archivist. So we purchased a work by him that was not in that show. Um, it's newly released images from his negatives. And so we love that. I mean, that's the time to strike, right? He's finally getting the historical recognition he always deserved. And it's like a nice legacy of having been part of that tour. And it's also, also a work that people didn't get to see yet. And it's from the, it's from the 70s and it's very cool. I really love it. Well, for folks who are out there listening who want to come to the museum, the museum is open, right? But you need to make a reservation, um, is that correct? So we are open and we are, we have been doing this really well. Um, we've got certain areas closed down, you know, there's no coat check, there's no drinking fountain, that kind of thing. But we do recommend timed tickets just because we're, every single gallery has a limit capacity. So it might be four people, six people. So if you're there visiting, check the signage and you know, space yourselves out accordingly. And so the time tickets are based on the whole museum. We're hoping that people will go upstairs as well. Um, so weekends are much, uh, if you're gonna come on the weekend, I would really get a timed reservation. If you're gonna come during the week, I think you're fine. Just come in and, and drop in and see us. But yes, we're closed Mondays and Tuesdays, but otherwise we're open uh, 10 to five. And yeah, we're here. I mean, this is what museums are made for. The, we're sort of, we've been kind of the butt of people's jokes for so long because it's like you say quiet and kind of whatever but that works in this era you have space you have air around you you're out of the house having an authentic experience and you're not crowded with people it's actually a great place to come right now and we require masks 
There's sanitizers everywhere. Um, our staff is cleaning all the door handles and railings every couple of hours, so you can feel good about it. And then the Walworth Wednesday is a virtual experience, right? So that for, for folks that um, want to sit in their chair at home and, and sort of get something new from you, um, they, they can find this on the website? Yeah, I feel a little guilty because I just pulled back the throttle on that a little bit. Like you were saying with the podcast, it's, it was because, you know, it would take me so long to find what I wanted to write about each week. And then half the time we needed to create new photography. So the art handlers had to get it out. Our photographer had to take the photograph. You know, I had to write it, we had to edit. And it was so great. But as things continue to amp up, it's just, so we're gonna go down to once a month now. So okay. what you can do is just go to the website, you know, go into a search module, put in Walworth Wednesday, and, and there's a whole, you know, months and months of um, just fun stuff on there. And there's one video in storage and then one video about the Eileen Gray chair, but yeah, it's been, I've been surprisingly popular. It's made me really happy to hear people's reaction. I think because, I mean, nobody wants to be bored. These are like quick fixes. And I think that it's a really great uh, window uh, into the art world is that you, you get that little hit of something um, and you don't have to commit sometimes to say driving downtown parking, going to the museum. Right. Um, it, it can give you a little fix and uh, it's great to just learn at the same time as you're being inspired. So I really have enjoyed them. Well, thank you for pointing that out because all of our exhibitions also, like the audio tours, I listen to those on my desktop. I don't do it while I'm in the exhibition. Anyone can do that from home. There's tons of content to access from home. All of our lectures now, this is one of the, also the benefits. You're, I don't know if you're experiencing this too, but you know, we were supposed to have our keynote lecturer here from Salem, Massachusetts, but he just did it from his living room and now it's going to live online and you know, people can watch from wherever, like his friend next door in Salem could, could watch that. Right, and ultimately more people will see it as a result. Yeah, it's kind of nice. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us. Our guest this week has been Catherine Walworth. She is the curator at the Columbia Museum of Art. And we're looking forward to hopefully one day when you have some help, um, we'll, we'll have to meet the other curator. But for now, um, if you're interested in what's going on at the Columbia Museum of Art, you can go to the website and you can go, uh, uh, they're open five days a week, Wednesday through Sunday, to visit in person and see um, the permanent collection, which is always worth your time. Um, but right now, the Visions from India is a really fun uh, exhibit that has just opened. Um, so you've got a little bit of time, but don't, don't, hold back too long because it's amazing how quickly it seems to happen between the email announcing it's opening and the email announcing this is the closing weekend. But it's right. definitely worth making the trip to the Columbia Museum of Art to see visions from India. Thank you. Yeah, that closes January 10th. And, and what a lot of people are saying is they want to come back and see it again. So yep, come on in, come see us. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. It's great talking to you. The Coker Center Arts Roundup is produced in part by Garnet Media Group, the student media partnership at the University of South Carolina. Information about tickets and upcoming events can be found at CogerCenterForTheArts.com, the official website for Coger Center tickets. For more information about Garnet Media Group, visit GarnetMedia.org.